This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Also, it will be uh, an opportunity for him to see how Congolese people are struggling. That's uh, Abraham Loakabuanga, uh, former director of press, press relations for DRC President Felix uh, Tshisekedi. Speaking about the visit of Pope Francis, we'll have more coming up on the Pope's arrival. Also, South Africa considers declaring an emergency over power outages. Kenya charges a suspect in the murder of an LGBTQ activist. And the UN calls for investigations of possible crimes against humanity in Mali. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Pope Francis arrived in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, a short time ago, where he was greeted by thousands of Catholics. Kinshasa is the first stop on a six-day trip to Africa. On Friday, he goes to South Sudan. Both countries have experienced years of violence. VOS James Butty spoke with Abraham Lukabuanga, the former director of press relations for DRC President Felix Tshisekedi. He said all was ready for the Pope's visit and shared what he thinks the government expects from it. We are expecting a real communion between the Pope and the Catholic community. Also, it will be uh, an opportunity for him to see how Congolese people are struggling, to see and to talk with uh, the civil society, talk with uh, politicians and, uh, you know, touch ground and uh, get the real situation of the country in this year that is leading us uh, through the elections by the end of the year. Pope Francis will not go to the Eastern DRC, which has long been ravaged by violence, both ethnic and communal. Luca Buanga, however, says he is expected to meet with several survivors of conflict in the eastern part of the country and delegations from congregations in the east. Reporter Jafar Al-Katanti is in Goma, the largest city in the east, where he spoke with people about the Pope's visit. Bon, ça, la venue du pape, c'est un moment de réconfort pour tout Congolais, surtout en ce moment de Philomon Batandi says the pope's visit is a moment of comfort for all Congolese, especially in this moment of crisis. And for me, really, it's a big moment, and I wouldn't like to miss it, he says. Well, first of all, the bruised hearts of the Congolese need moral support, especially here in Goma. But she notes the Pope is not really going to be in Goma. She would have liked to have gone to Kinshasa to see him, but it's too far away, and she cannot afford it. Mumamberi Muranga says it's a joy for Congolese to have the Pope's visit. C'est une joie pour nous les Congolais que nous puissions être visités par une très grande... He says the Pope's visit will be unforgettable. But the question he wants to ask is why did the Pope come now? Why didn't he come before? There is suffering in the DRC and it began long ago. Why choose to come only now? Mariette Dungu says she was upset the Pope is not visiting Goma. Si on avait le moyen, on serait aussi parti lui voir en direct, mais suite au, 
She says if she had the money, she would go to Kinshasa to see the Pope. But she has a child, and they cannot afford to go, and she could not travel alone. But if she could speak to the Pope, she would ask him to come visit. And she says she has many questions she wants to ask him, so many it would be like writing a novel. But if people could ask him their questions, she says, then he would know what they need. Pope Francis is expected to bring a message of peace and reconciliation. He will hold a public prayer in Kinshasa tomorrow. The 86-year-old pontiff will meet with Tshisekedi, government officials, diplomats, civil society leaders, and victims of conflict from the East, which faced armed opposition from the M23 rebel group and dozens of others. The conflict has displaced tens of thousands and killed hundreds. The Central African nation also is preparing for an election later this year and is concerned about political violence. The country's Catholic leadership has been vocal about the postponement of elections and the political leaders' attempt to hang to power. According to the Vatican, 49% of Congolese are Catholic. The church leader says politicians must prioritize the interests of the country. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to soon declare a national state of disaster because of the country's energy crisis. Africa's second-largest economy has had no electricity for up to 12 hours a day since July, although blackouts have been happening regularly for 15 years. Energy experts blame the near collapse of the power grid on government corruption and mismanagement at state electricity enterprise ESCOM. Darren Taylor reports. The outages are causing Africa's most industrialized economy to decline rapidly. South Africa already has the highest unemployment rate in the world at 35%. This is climbing further with businesses folding because they don't have enough electricity to turn profits. Agriculture is being decimated. Farmers can't operate machinery to irrigate crops. Poultry is the country's primary source of animal protein. But millions of chickens have suffocated because farmers couldn't oxygenate their coops. Agricultural associations say food shortages and corresponding price hikes loom. The blackouts are killing people, with motorists dying in collisions at intersections where traffic lights fail, for example, and hospital patients die when medical equipment doesn't work. On Monday, after a high-level ANC meeting, Ramaphosa said the words energy experts have been urging him to say for years. There was talk about a declaration of a national state of disaster, like what we did when we faced COVID-19, and there's broad agreement that we should move in that direction. Ramaphosa blames the crisis on the alleged corruption of his predecessor, Jacob Zuma. However, when Ramaphosa was deputy president between 2014 and 2018, he chaired an ANC-appointed energy crisis committee tasked with ending so-called load shedding. Under his watch, the ANC ignored solutions presented by energy experts such as the partial privatization of electricity provision 
and increased use of clean power. Professor Mark Swilling is a development expert and member of the National Planning Commission, a state-appointed panel of government advisors. South Africa is actually almost in a state of war. Under what conditions would one invoke war measures to overcome the normal ways of doing business which would be inappropriate for fighting a war? We are facing a very, very, very serious disaster. He explains that a state of disaster would allow the government to circumvent procedures usually required for ESCOM to procure what it needs to generate more electricity fast. Materials such as equipment and coal, normal tender and contract processes wouldn't be followed. This happened during the COVID-19 pandemic and Swilling acknowledges ANC officials allegedly used the state of disaster to steal billions of rands. Obviously, there are lots and lots of dangers. Circumventing normal procurement procedures opens the door for corruption. But if that can be managed appropriately, then what we are looking at is much quicker solution to the breakdown of the electricity generation machines, and every South African should celebrate that. Swilling advises the government to flood ESCOM with top-quality equipment and highly skilled engineers as fast as possible. If that is all in parallel with a rapid escalation of renewables build in order to create more space for ESCOM to take machines off the grid to fix them properly, we could actually be through this load-shedding nightmare. Ramaphosa says he's in favor of incentivizing householders and businesses that want to use alternative sources of power, like solar. It's often referred to as the Vietnam solution. Vietnam did exactly that under pressure, and within a year there were nine extra gigs of rooftop generation capacity on the grid. So it can work, and it's probably the fastest way to get more electrons into the system compared to all the others. ESCOM, though, expects the crisis to continue for at least two years. Under these circumstances, with citizens increasingly stressed and angry, social scientists are warning that the potential for civil unrest is extremely high. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. UN rights experts are calling for an immediate independent probe into potential war crimes committed in Mali by the government and Russian-backed mercenaries. The experts include members of a working group appointed by the UN Human Rights Council that does not speak on behalf of the world body. According to the French news agency AFP, since 2021, the experts have received persistent accounts of violations by the armed forces and the Wagner Group. The allegations include executions, mass graves, torture, rape, sexual violence, disappearances, and pillaging. In the village of Muara, in central Mali, mercenaries allegedly killed about 300 minority Fulani. The UN's peacekeeping force has requested access to the site. The UN experts say they have conveyed their concerns directly to Mali's government. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Washington will continue to encourage Egypt to take steps on human rights, including the freeing of political prisoners.
According to Reuters, after he met in Cairo with President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Blinken said Egypt has taken important strides in protecting religious freedoms, empowering women, and releasing some prisoners. In the past, the U.S. relied on Egypt in reducing tension and stopping escalation between Palestinians and Israelis. But this time, Blinken went from Cairo to Israel, then the West Bank, to do that himself. Khalid El-Gindi, director of program on Palestine and Israel at the Middle East Institute, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi why. Egypt's role has been most prominent in Gaza. And since most of the violence in the past week has been concentrated in uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem, Egypt doesn't have the same kind of role historically there. The second point I would make is that Blinken's visit to Cairo and to Israel and the West Bank was planned well before this latest crisis. And it's not the focus of his mission, which was pre-planned. And so he didn't go out there in order to reduce tensions or to broker a ceasefire or to do de-escalation, but he's going out there as part of a, a bigger mission in which now he has to address the current crisis by calling on all sides to restore calm. But there's no political initiative attached to those calls. So in the past, if you go back, for example, to the second intifada, when there was quite a lot of diplomacy and attempts to restore calm, it was usually attached to some kind of political initiative or political horizon. We don't have any of that now. It's simply Blinken telling everyone, please do whatever you can to stop the violence, but not as part of any broad political program. But after meeting Israeli Prime Minister Secretary Blinken said, as we advance Israel's integration, we can do so in ways that improve the daily lives of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And that's crucial to moving toward our enduring goal of Palestinians and Israelis enjoying equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity. And we continue to believe that the best way to achieve it is to preserve and then realize the vision of two states. How significant is this message? To be honest, I think it's not very significant at all. It is standard boilerplate language that has been used many times by various members of the administration. It's not any different than the the talking points we've been hearing for most of the last two years. So there's nothing new contained in it. And if anything, I think talking about equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice in the midst of the current crisis when the gap between Israelis and Palestinians in terms of security and freedom and justice and all of these things has never been greater. I think it sort of underscores how disconnected and even disinterested this administration is in the Israeli-Palestinian file, which is something that they have generally avoided working on. It's not a very high priority, except in moments of crisis. And even in moments of crisis, the administration doesn't really have much to offer other than calls for calm and working to go back to the way things were before the crisis spiraled out of control.
Blinken told the Israeli Prime Minister that anything that moves us away from the vision of two-state solution is, in our judgment, detrimental to Israel's long-term security and its long-term identity as a Jewish and democratic state. He added that that's why we are urging all sides now to take urgent steps to restore calm and to de-escalate. What's your take on that? There's nothing new here. They've said this repeatedly in moments of crisis and in moments of, of relative calm, that all sides should refrain from taking unilateral steps that damage prospects for a future two-state solution. The other problem is if you're laying out a marker and you're asking the sides, don't cross this line, it doesn't really mean very much unless there's some sort of consequence attached to it. So if you're only appealing to everybody's goodwill but there's no consequence, then what incentive do either side have uh, to go along with that, especially the stronger side, Israel, which uh, can simply uh, impose its will on the ground more or less as they see fit. That was Khalid El-Gindi, Director of Program on Palestine and Israel at the Middle East Institute, speaking with VOA's Mohammed al-Shanawi. Kenya state prosecutors are charging a suspected lover of LGBTQ activist Edwin Kipruto, known as Edwin Chiloba, with his murder. Chiloba's body was found in a metal box on the side of the road earlier in January, sparking fears of a hate crime, as Victoria Munga reports from Nairobi. Kenya State Council Anthony Feather told a court Tuesday that investigators have gathered evidence linking Chiloba's lover Jackton Odhiambo to the death. Odhiambo, a freelance photographer, appeared in Eldoret Town Tuesday to face murder charges. He has not yet entered a plea. Odhiambo appeared alongside other suspects who were freed after prosecutors established they were not associated with the killing. For the second to fifth we have no evidence continue having them in custody. They can't be released. for the second part of the we still require them to report at the DCI Eldoret South once a month for three months to report. According to the Associated Press, investigators have determined the murder was not a hate crime. AP further reports that investigators believe the murder was linked to a love triangle. Many members of Kenya's LGBTQ feared Chiloba was targeted for his sexuality and activism. Kenya's chief government pathologist Johansen Odwar said Chiloba, a 25-year-old model and fashion designer, had been smothered to death. The murder attracted global attention. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price urged the Kenyan authorities to thoroughly investigate the case. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. The Central Bank of Nigeria, CBN, has mobilized 30,000 agents nationwide to help the vulnerable and those living in remote areas exchange their cash for the nation's new currency. The bank has also extended the deadline for exchanging old bills by 10 days, saying some 30% of the old bills are still in circulation. But critics say authorities should have stuck to the deadline for the currency swap. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. 
The deployment of the 30,000 Central Bank of Nigeria agents followed Sunday's announcement of a 10-day extension of the January 31st deadline for citizens to swap their old cash for the new currency. The Central Bank said the gesture was to allow more citizens to exchange their old bills and reduce the risk of losses, especially for those in Nigeria's rural areas with limited access to financial services. The CBN also approved a seven-day window period after the new deadline, during which citizens still holding the old currency must then deposit the bills directly to the central bank. But while many praise the longer change over time, Abuja resident Prince Eromsela says the CBN succumbed to pressures from the political class. I had this feeling it might be extended because of um, the APC and the PP. Uh, presidential aspirants, their reaction. And if I'm being honest, I'll say I'm very, very, very disappointed with the CBN governor. 31st is 31st. Nigerians have already started. We have started adapting to it already. We just, we just have to make rules and abide by it. The measure, launched in October, saw the redesigning of Nigeria's 200, 500 and 1,000 Naira notes. The move is meant to combat counterfeiting encourage more online payments and reduce crime, including the practice of vote buying using stashes of accumulated cash. Nigeria holds general elections next month. Ndu Mwokolo is a lead partner at Next Year, a public policy think tank. He says the currency swap is beneficial. I think what CBN did was the, to look at um, some some critical variables around the system in terms of um, the the present circumstances in the country. So you have an election that's about going on. You have the pressures from the politicians and political parties. You have the ongoing um, fair crisis situation. So based on this, you know, these things are like, they are all drivers and the economy is interwoven. So I think they looked at the the entire situation. Some 40% of Nigerians do not have access to bank services. Mokolo says the swap is an opportunity to correct that. It could be another opportunity to start looking at how do you start getting these people to, to, to start going through the legal banking sector system. So you don't want a situation where the politicians can cash on that and um, cause a kind of revolt against the the government. The central bank has faced backlash from critics opposed to the currency reforms, including some lawmakers. Last week, the Speaker of the House of Representatives threatened to arrest central bank governor Godwin Emefiele over his refusal to appear before the House committee investigating the alleged scarcity of the redesigned Naira notes across the country. Meanwhile, Nigeria's secret police are investigating Mefile for alleged financial crimes, financing terrorism and graft. This is Nigeria's first currency update in nearly two decades. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. In Madagascar, flooding and landslides caused by tropical storm Cheniso 
has caused 30 deaths, with another 20 people missing. The Associated Press says the storm brought winds of up to 170 kilometers per hour and unleashed torrential rains that collapsed houses and caused landslides, trapping people. Authorities are warning people not to cross flooded rivers because of the strong currents. The AP says nearly 33,000 people have had to leave their homes in the Boni region on the northwestern part of the island. Merchants say roads have been cut, leading to an increase in the prices of vegetables and rice. Local authorities say essential food supplies are being distributed to help support those in need. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Patrick Dea, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.